This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming today. Thanks, Ariel, for giving me a chance to talk. It's a privilege that I appreciate very much. Is there anybody here that's here for the first time today? Yes? You, you? What's your name? Jasper. Jasper. Oh. Glad you're here. Now, are you new to Buddhism or are you... Uh, you know, yeah, just new to the place. Yeah. What? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Relatively, yeah. at least. Okay, so I'm curious. Why do you guys practice? Why do we practice? Why do, what? And I'm asking you all. Why do you practice? You practice to feel good? How many people practice to feel good? Raise these hands. Would it also be to practice to not feel bad? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, or to not feel bad, yes, I think that. How many of you are telling the truth? <laughs> well, I suspect quite a few of us practice to feel good, and, or maybe I'm just projecting myself on you. This is something I wrote uh, in 2002. Uh, it was actually part of a Dharma talk. I think of my first 12 years of practicing Zen. Though I do not regret them, I can see that always underneath my practice was a strong desire to feel good. Of course, I think it's important to feel good. I think it may be necessary to feel good before you can go on to help other people feel good. I do, however, think it's important to recognize this desire for what it is. The way I sat craving the blissful moments, the peaceful moments, the light moments, when I would drop away, and how rare those moments were because of my craving. And when one of those moments came along, how I regarded it as coming to me from someplace outside myself, and how I watched it and lost it due to anxiety over losing it, and failing to realize that it was not separate from me. I wrote this, or I... uh, as part of a Dharma talk about cutting through spiritual materialism, which I had just read by Trungpa Rinpoche, which made me, for the first time, aware of um, how, uh, how craving I was to feel good. Or, as Rudy said, in my case, I, I don't know that I was looking so much to feel good, I was just looking to feel different from how I felt, which felt bad. Whether it was really bad or not, it felt bad. If you are practicing to feel good, I can tell you at my old age, uh, having arrived at old age, that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, sometimes I, I feel, because of my practice, I feel things so much that I almost wish they just, oh, please, <laughs> I don't want to feel anymore. <laughs> but then I just, really. I mean, I think that, I think uh, having uh, a strong affinity with our feelings is important to living a a full life and I think that's what this practice is about would you agree that this practice is about really experiencing our life fully in the bad and the good and the, you know, the anxiety and the joy and so um, my talk is called Aliveness in Body and Mind and it is based somewhat on uh, a book by Zenki Dillo. How many of you remember Zenki Dillo? I think it was about a year ago that he came here and he gave a workshop on bodyfulness. 
And he left his book in the library. And his book has this wonderful title, The Path to Aliveness. So his book is uh, very, very wordy. Uh, It's 25 chapters long. Uh, It covers all bases. It doesn't leave any loose ends. (laughs) It's very different from the teachings of Rinzai, which I started out with, which are very terse and just, you know, he didn't explain everything to you. He just kind of showed us the way to what reality was and let us figure it out for ourselves. So, uh, But I got a lot out of Zenki's book, and I got a lot out of his workshop that he gave around bodyfulness. So what I wanted to talk about today was just several meditative techniques that I have been working on for a couple of years, but I was highly inspired uh, by Zenki. Uh, so one of them is uh, bodyfulness. It was a, a word uh, that he sort of made up, or at least he used, and bodyfulness is the body's answer to mindfulness. And mindfulness is uh, the mind being aware of itself, and bodyfulness is the body being aware of itself. So Zenki lays out everything very clearly, uh, very almost scientifically. He um, defines attention and consciousness and awareness in, in, in this way. He talks about attention to our sensations or attention to yeah, attention to anything that we sense, like something that we see. There's a little exercise where you're sitting at your desk and you, uh, you, you see something and, uh, and you kind of focus on it and it, it comes forward and th- other things fall into the background and you're aware of that through your sense of sight or your uh, attention, you're attending to it through your sense of sight. And he talks about this, this attention to an object and the object and the attention kind of weave together in a way and create what we call consciousness. And he talks about two different kinds of consciousness, the attentional and the cognitive. And cognitive attention is, you know, the, the, the kind of attention where all these thoughts come up around whatever it is you're, you're paying attention to. And this is what, you know, we, in our day-to-day world, we're, we pretty much live with this, you know. I look at some object on my desk. Um, I looked at a bottle of hand lotion that was sitting on my desk, and I noticed that in addition to just seeing it, I, I felt it. I felt what it felt like to feel that hard white plastic, and I felt what the cream felt like on my hands, and I felt what it felt like to punch the little plunger down. And um, so I realized, you know, this is cognitive attention. I'm thinking all these thoughts come up from my experience with hand lotion. Attentional type of consciousness, however, is more backing off a bit where your other senses aren't coming into play, your thoughts aren't coming into play so much, you just see the object, you're aware it's there, and uh, that's attentional. That's the more what we, the kind of uh, way we approach uh, attention more when we're in meditation and not getting all bogged down with all the thoughts that come up. So that's consciousness. That's uh, the uh, combination, the intersection of attention and uh, uh, something that's uh, an object of our attention. But when we back off from that, when we back off from attention to a particular object, we start to notice that our mind is dancing around, paying attention to many different objects, and also thoughts that are coming into our head. And so we back off and we start to not just be 
engulfed in attention or focus on one particular thing, but we start to see our mind working and see, uh, get intimate with our mind. And I'm sure everybody's very familiar with this. And that's what he calls awareness. And awareness is, uh, there's deep awareness and not so deep awareness. Uh, I think when awareness becomes very deep, we feel a lot of silence around it. We feel peaceful. We feel a softness. We feel stillness and and silence mostly. So uh, starting with aliveness in the body, I want to talk about uh, Zenki's teaching on bodyfulness. The physical body, as you know, is a seat of our aliveness. You, You can't be alive without one. To be bodyful is to be bringing attention to our bodily sensations. Some parts of our body, it's, it's easy to, to be able to bring our attention to uh, uh, sensations. Say, right now I'm sitting here and my feet are on the floor, so I'm very aware of my feet. I pay a lot of good attention to my feet. I, my sitting bones are feeling uh, the chair that I'm sitting in and the weight of my body. I'm very aware of my sitting bones. Uh, there's parts of my body that are just kind of big empty spaces. If they were a map, they'd just be a big gray area. I don't feel my knees, for instance. Maybe you do, because some of you are sitting cross-legged, and maybe your knees are even starting to feel a little uncomfortable from that. But I'm, I can't feel my knees. I can't feel the back of my head. I can't even feel my lower legs or my thighs very much either. So there's parts of the body that some of us aren't aware of. And I think many people are a lot more body aware than I am. So this practice was really helpful to me to uh, try to do a better job of being with my physical body. It's interesting. Uh, you know, we teach breath awareness, and uh, I, I suddenly realized that, you know, breath isn't exactly uh, coming at us through our senses. Our senses are seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and, and, and thinking. And in Buddhism, of course, the mind is one of the sense organs, so pretty powerful sense organ. But breathing isn't, we don't really feel that with our, you know, our sense of touch. We don't, we don't feel it. It's internal, but, but we can be aware of it. So I guess it just falls through the cracks, and we treat it like a sense, like a sensory a perception, as, as is our heartbeat. We can, we can be aware of our heartbeat, but we, it's not really one of our... Strictly speaking, our six senses. That was just a thought I had. I don't know, but we're, we'll treat it like a sense. So we're we're aware of our breath. We're aware of the inhaling and exhaling. We're aware of our chest expanding, and uh, maybe we're aware of our diaphragm rising up and down. And when we get into a state of of awareness, where we've drawn back just a little bit from breath ex- uh, breath attention. And we can actually back off from that a little bit and become more aware of what's happening with us. And we start to get into this quiet place, this peaceful, quiet environment. And our our awareness is more detached. It's not so hooked into our breathing or any particular thing. It's somewhat floating free. When that happens, bodyfulness uh, encourages us to take that feeling of awareness and let it float through the body. So taking it and and experiencing it through our whole body. If you're new to doing this, it doesn't always work at first, but if you keep if you keep with it, if you make it a part of your meditation practice, 
I'm here to tell you it does it does help and you do start to notice some of those parts of your body that you can't feel through your senses some of those empty spaces I've heard about it before people would say in guided meditation various teachers would say something in guided meditation like as you breathe in just let the breath go all the way to your feet or all the way to your hands and just throughout your body feel the breath throughout your body and whereas I don't necessarily think this was bad advice I always wondered how scientific it was because (laughs) it doesn't seem to me that the breath does spread throughout your body Uh, I'm not sure is there a doctor here anyone who knows Anyway, it seemed a little bit, maybe a little bit woo-woo. And, uh, but I, I like Zanke's way more of just talking about letting the awareness float, float around because awareness is very floaty and we can extend it. And that's basically what I talk about today is about extending our awareness. I did notice that like when I was in Tassajara, you know, there was uh, hot springs there and a wonderful bathhouse and we visited the bathhouse every day because we were in a somewhat meditative state I would lay in the, in the water float in the water and I would watch my breath my inhaling and my exhaling and I would notice that when I inhaled my whole body would lift up it wasn't just my torso everything lifted up so I, there is something to the buoyancy I think that in our body that is affected by our breath so working on this I've been doing this and then I and I want to I want to step further and this might be something you, many of you already do, but I didn't. I was always just very barely aware of my heartbeat. I mean, I wasn't always aware of it, but when I did tune into it, I could maybe far off in the distance, I could feel a heartbeat. And I started paying a lot more attention to my heartbeat. And I was kind of amazed how powerful uh, it felt after paying attention to it in a more continuous basis. And it got so that I could feel my pulse all throughout my body. And I can still do that. And I love it. I love that feeling of energy because I can actually, it's almost as if I can feel the blood coursing through my body. And I'm really surprised at how powerful it is. And even just sitting here right now, it's almost like a thumping that I can feel in my, in my thighs. You know, that's uh, another I think he didn't really talk about the heartbeat, but I, I found it was very powerful, and it didn't take any woo-woo steps. It was just natural. <laughs> we just started watching it, and then it became louder and louder and more powerful. And it's, it's wonderful to have that kind of grounding and to be able to, to go there uh, in times of uh, anything, I mean, in stress or, or whenever it's it's helpful sometimes it helps me go to sleep but not always I have a terrible trouble with sleep and I have a lot of anxiety touching base with my body has been a big help so uh, thank you Zenki Dello for bringing this practice to mind I, I think I got started doing it because I've, I've, I was brought up kind of in a spiritual desert you might say uh, I, I didn't really uh, experience as a child any kind of uh, any kind of belief in the unseen shall we say it was always just uh, if I see it it's true and if it's if I can't sense it it's not and so I've always been a little felt like a little bit of a, a philistine or something when I've been around Zen people when I first started people would say things like oh I like sitting to you, next to you because I could feel your energy and I'm like 
what? I mean, I didn't say that, but you know, I just, uh, I, I couldn't ever feel anybody's energy, including my own. So, uh, so this practice has been helpful for me. Uh, Zanke talks about uh, feeling a buzz of, ali- of aliveness. I've tried to feel the buzz of aliveness, mostly just what I feel or what I experience is my tintness. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I have tintness that never stops. It's just all the time. It's always there, and it's a buzz. So, all right, so my tintness is my buzz of aliveness. <laughs> I don't know. That's his experience of buzz of aliveness and, and mine with my tintness. So I wanted to switch now topics and talk a little bit more about the aliveness of mind. And, you know, we we all know that our bodies and minds aren't separate, but yet they are, but they aren't, but they are. So this uh, next technique has to do with the awareness of spaciousness, both the spaciousness around us and the spaciousness that's inside, because supposedly, according to Buddhist philosophy, we are made of space. We are, we are nothing but space and energy. So trying to feel the energy of the body, now become more aware of the energy of the mind and spaciousness. So this is what Zanke calls moving from attending to the body uh, to attending with the body. So using the body to uh, become more aware of what's going on in this spacious world. So why, why contemplate spaciousness? Contemplating spaciousness has always been an important part of my practice. How many of you spend a lot of time thinking about the spaciousness? Is that, is that a few people? So, so not everybody does that. But I've always found it really helpful. Uh, one thing, uh, and, and why? why? Why is it important to... Um, why is spaciousness so helpful? Well, space is a wonderful thing. I mean, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for space. We wouldn't be able to move if it weren't for space. We have to have room to move, and that's what space gives us. And space holds everything in it. Everything is held within well, the space of the universe. All right, we can easily, we can kind, we can kind of see this. It's kind of incomprehensible. The universe is very incomprehensible, but at least you know we can. We can experience it in, in an actual physical way. You know, you go outside and look at the stars or just look up at the sky in that vast space uh, or go to the beach. I've always felt that people, people love the beach. And, uh, you know, personally, I don't really enjoy that gritty sand all over me and I don't really like swimming in salt water that much, but I love the beach. and. I think people love the beach because people crave spaciousness, and that's what you find there, is that vast ocean and that vast sky meeting way far away. And that vastness is, is, is something we, um, I don't know, long for. I don't know if that's too strong a word, but you know, it feel, feels nourishing to us. Space is also non-judgmental. Space accommodates everything. Actually, space is really analogous with emptiness. So those of you who are looking, for, looking to experience emptiness, as I have always been, space is pretty close to it. And space is nice because we can actually physically experience it, whereas emptiness is not 
quite so accessible. The, the spaciousness inside of us, though, is not, is not so easy to see either. Another aspect of, of space is that space is, you know, the whole Buddhist thing about host and guest. So space is our host. Space accommodates us. Space uh, uh, makes room for all of us. And there's room for everything in space, everything. Uh, things don't interfere with each other. It's kind of like the, the cloud in the sky. The sky uh, allows the clouds to float and, and doesn't doesn't put any barriers up to them so that they can float freely. And, of course, you know the way to have a... Is it a happy cow? Or a, is to give their, your cow lots of space, as Suzuki Roshi says. I don't think it was a happy cow. What kind of cow was it? A what? To control. Oh, to control your cow. Okay. Give it lots of space. <laughs> give it lots of space. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so space is, is a host, and... Uh, and of course, when there's hosts, there's guests. So all of the all of activity is the guests within the host, the guest within the sky. Um, so activity grows out of space. Space is kind of like the the birthplace of activity. Just like sound is the, I mean, silence is the birthplace of sound. You can't have sound without silence. You can't have activity without space. So that's the why of space. So. Spaciousness. So how do we work with spaciousness during meditation? Uh, one way to work with spaciousness is to, first of all, just your breath. Your breath is, is space. You know, to be very aware of the expanding of your you know, ribcage. Um, that's space. You're breathing in space. Sometimes I like to take my attention to my uh, mudra. That is at the... Uh, at my uh, center of gravity or hara and uh, feel like I'm breathing right straight into my hara right straight into my center of gravity so breathing is uh, the first stage of spaciousness awareness another uh, practice that I do and I've done this for a long time and I find it very very helpful is to think of breathing through my thoughts Breathing through my thoughts and breathing through my sensations, breathing through pain, uh, especially. I mean, I remember being taught to, to breathe into my pain, but I actually breathe through it. And the reason this is so nice is that it kind of uh, pinpoints or brings to mind the diaphanous of our thoughts, for instance, or even the diaphanous of our pain. It doesn't feel diaphanous, but, you know, it isn't permanent and it's fleeting and our thoughts are just little electric pulsations in our mind they really aren't anything and breathing through them helps you feel that you know with your very being uh, you can kind of imagine uh, breathing through a thought and then just watching the thought kind of you know like like the end of a uh, fireworks display you know where all the stuff just sprinkles down so you can think of the thought just breaking up and falling away. I mean, I realize these are all concepts and uh, little tools for, for practicing. Uh, and, but, I don't know. I think, I think it's helpful. I hope it's helpful. I hope I'm not saying anything that's going to get you in some kind of uh, a weird over-conceptualization of things. 
always have to worry about that. That's why Rinzai just said, didn't, didn't go into any of this. So those are some ways to work with, with, think, with uh, spaciousness. Oh, oh, another thing I wanted to mention about space, too. I don't know. Have, have any of you read the Vimalakirti Sutra? Anybody? Rich? Yeah. Well, Vimalakirti has this mind-blowing chapter in there about, uh, he's always talking about the great Mahasattvas and the great Bodhisattvas and the, you know, all, these, all these great, uh, our great ancestors. And uh, he talks about this throne room where the thrones are uh, unconceptually uh, uh, high. Like I, I can't, it seems like they're even uh, they're more than like hundred miles high. They're just you know mind-blowingly high, big. These incredible thrones, but these uh, all these mahasattvas and uh, bodhisattvas and great beings were able to get onto the thrones because they were able to grow so big that they could they could do that. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, it's a it's a wonderful. Uh, spacious uh, chapter that uh, kind of frees you from any boundaries of space. So Dogen said something kind of uh, a puzzle. Like, you know, like so much of what Dogen says is, is a little, sometimes seems very incomprehensible. Well, most of the time seems very incomprehensible. Um, he said. The entire world in the ten directions is nothing but the true human body. So what did he mean by this? I think I've come closer to understanding this and preparing this thought, uh, preparing this talk. The entire world in the ten directions is, is nothing but the true human body. I think what he means, or I think what he's saying, uh, I don't like to say what people mean, because he's saying what he means, but uh, uh, I think this points to the fact that we experience our life through our physical body and all of its senses. But our physical body is at the center of this vast field of mind. Field of mind is a word that Zenki talked about a lot, or he had a whole chapter on it, and one of his 25 chapters was on the field of mind, and I found it really interesting. So... Uh, if we can, you know, because the field of mind, uh, because our mind, this is, you know, the Zen Buddhism is a part of the Yoga Chara school. And the Yoga Chara school says that mind is everything. So our field of mind is our whole life. Uh, uh, our mind is uh, quite capable of being uh, infinitely vast. And although we don't see that most of the time, and we are uh, a part of our mind. Our mind isn't just inside. I mean, we tend to think of our mind being, I, mean, I know I do anyway, I think of my mind as being up here somewhere and it's inside me. But uh, in, in actuality, the um, boundaries between inside and outside sort of fall away. And we really are, uh, our mind is, is us. So it's our total experience. And we can't live outside of our field of mind. We cannot get step outside of our field of mind. It's just like the, the fish can't leave the water or it will die. We can't get out of it. It's everything. 
and everything that arises in it and all of our experiences are part of our mind. So when uh, people, other people arise, they're part of our mind. And we kind of know this with the word, through the word projection, that we are projecting the people in our mind are, are our own projections, and we are projections in their minds. So we're experiencing uh, our, our our fields of mind, and we and we can't we can't get outside of our mind to hug a person. You know, we have to hug them inside of our field of mind. So we're hugging our projection of this person. We're not hugging the real person, or whatever the real person is. <laughs> not sure what that is. It all gets pretty unexplainable, but. <laughs> you know, and that you know that expression that you hear. It is it it is you. You are you aren't it. That's what that's about. You know the I think that is that in the jeweled mirror samadhi. It is you. You are not yeah facing a jeweled mirror. Um, it is you. You are not it. So your experiences of people is your experience of people. You are not it. In truth, it is you. Yes, you are not it. In truth, it is you. It is you. Yeah. Did I say it? I hope I said it that way. It is you. I said it backwards, but it says what you were saying. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, uh, field. This idea of field. uh, Zenki kind of had some nice things to say about this idea of why, why the word field is used, and it is used a lot, and we have a, you know, we say our, uh, put on our rockasus and we say field beyond form and emptiness, so that's a field. I think it might be the same field, actually, the field of mind. So Zengi mentions the qualities of a field that kind of help us understand why this word is used. First of all, uh, a field has a feeling of spaciousness, a feeling of extendedness. Uh, maybe infinite, but if you think of a rice field, or a, it's not infinite, but it's it's big and it it kind of extends out from everywhere, kind of all around us. And a field is fecund, or is it fecund? Fecund. So it, uh, a field, a, a farmer's field, gives birth to crops, and it, and it provides everything for the crops to grow. You know, sun, sun, rain, seeds, earth. You know, all of that's part of the field. And a field, and then switching to more scientific use of the word field, a, a force field, field has uh, electrical, all, kind, well, all kinds of forces in it that uh, you know, are kind of throughout the, the field. So, uh, and uh, so the field has power over its contents. So all of this thing gets field, used. To, so the field of mind has been spoken of for thousands of years. Uh, Dogen wished that his students to be, wished his students to be steadily intimate in their field of mind. He uses the expression, and by intimate he means the intimacy of simultaneously appearing in each other's mind fields. Just a complicated way to say intimacy with other people. Uh, so um, yeah, so uh, this mind is 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 not inside me and instead as I mentioned before it's kind of a the, it's everything it's not just inside me it is me you know, if you if you will so uh, another aspect and this is something that Zenki talked about although I don't think he talked about it in his workshop here uh, but another aspect of feeling your aliveness and uh, starting to maybe work with grasping 
this idea of the spaciousness uh, all around us, within us, everywhere, is he talked about when you're meditating and you're in a, a deep awareness when everything's gotten pretty, pretty silent and still, and uh, I don't know, for me, my, I guess I, my, my awareness feels like a little cloud or some, something, or kind of a, it's, it's kind of movable. We already talked about the body awareness being moving into different parts of the body. Uh, you can also think of, in terms of moving your, um, your awareness outside of your body, moving it into the space uh, that's around you. And um, I have worked with this idea, and uh, at first I couldn't do it at all. It just, uh, you know, I don't know whether a feeling that it was too woo-woo or something, I couldn't, I couldn't really believe in it or whatever, but I found it very, very hard to do. But I kept at it, you know, not in a, not in a driven way, but just a gentle way. I kept thinking in terms of, of bringing my awareness outside of my body, mostly here, sitting here in this zendo, and... Um, being aware of the dimensions of the room. And, uh, and, you know, at first it would just go, I could actually sort of feel it a little, just a little bit outside of me. And um, I tried to feel it behind me because, again, this is, has to do with my quest for sort of seeing the unseen. And um, uh, so um, I was serious about doing it. And so feeling the, this um, sense of, of peacefulness outside of me, feeling this awareness outside of my body. And uh, that works especially well. Uh, I've always wondered why it's so much nicer to meditate in the early morning and at night, you know, like at a session, you know, at 9 o'clock at night, it's uh, meditation becomes very special. And I think it's because it's dark. And when it's dark, it's easier to picture the, the breakdown of the inside and outside, you know. So it's dark, you don't see it. It's dark inside, it's dark outside, and it's, it's a little bit easier. So uh, come at 6 o'clock in the morning and practice moving, <laughs> moving your <laughs> awareness outside of your body. Uh, some of you probably already do this. I, you know, I, I feel a little bit like a retard sometimes. <laughs> and I might be talking to a whole room full of people that already do these practices. I don't know. So, so everything becomes topsy-turvy. So instead of carrying this little mind around in my head, this little limited mind that can only go so far, uh, the mind contains me, and the mind and the mind and the space are infinite. And it's inside and it's outside. There's no distinction. The mind is vast and goes beyond. Everything is possible. Uh, Everything is possible in this vast spaciousness. And I don't know, but I think that field that um, Valerie um, Beers, when she was here, talked about the Arakasu and and what the field meant in it. And she kind of equated it to a rice field because that's what they have a lot of in Japan. Um, field far beyond form and emptiness. I think it's also the field far beyond inside and outside. I think this field is none other than our field of mind. And as we know, the f- being far beyond means that distinctions are left behind. We go so far away from form and emptiness that the distinctions between the two are no longer there. 
the distinctions between inside and outside, which is probably another way of saying form and emptiness, is also becomes uh, becomes non-dualistic. So I'll just close with a one little sentence, an admonition from some Zen master. I'm not sure who said this. Maybe multiples in different ways have said this. Just get out of your way and there's nowhere you can't go. I'll sign off with with that and if there's any discussion I... uh, I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. I hope. Well, don't ask anything too hard. <laughs> Please. <laughs> oh, so. If there's any, any comments or questions. I thank you for your talk. I really like thinking about this. And sometimes, like when Daigon was here, he talked about how breath awareness isn't always safe for some people. Like some people have trauma in their breath. Yeah. And I've always found that like the bodyfulness and being able to like focus on different parts is is an alternative thing that's maybe sometimes safer. But um, and the other thing was in your talk it seemed like a lightly used word, but it was it seemed like you used a lightly used word, but you used the word R E T A R D. Um, to refer to yourself. Oh. And that's not a skillfully that's not a cool. skillful word anymore. <laughs> that's a word that um, has been used to cause great harm to people. And so I just wanted to Thank you. call it out. At one point I heard you say instead of mind field, in my mind it appeared as mine field. <laughs> oh, mine field. Mine field, yes. That was- not something you said, but I heard. And, uh, I know, yeah. I, I was hearing it that way sometimes, too. Yeah. <laughs> Peering in each other's minefields. Uh, <laughs> 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 Try that one on. <laughs> Rich. Oh, I just want to say thank you for that wonderful talk and reminding me of Zeki uh, Dillo's book and his teachings. Um, I really enjoyed what he came to, and I just wanted to share my, one of the moments that I really enjoyed when he came to speak was when he talked to, with, about space. Uh, and um, I remember reading in the book that he said that normally we think of space as the thing that separates us. Yes, that, that yes. Us apart. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. But actually space could be conceived as this thing that connects us all. Yes, yes. And I was like, ooh, that's a really interesting term. Like, I haven't, like, yes, we're not separate. Yes, in a yeah. very real way. Like, yeah. Not, it's not woo-woo at all. It's like, yes. You know, so that to me was like a really... Uh, yeah, thank you for bringing uh, that up. Like, yeah, he, he talked about, and you can make a space bubble around, you know, wherever you are, whoever you're with. You can make a bubble. You can think of a bubble of space. So, yeah. No. Play with that idea. Thanks a lot. Yes. Uh, thank you for your talk. I, I thought uh, just to add to what Rich was saying as well. Um, I, I, I would say that I struggle with um, relating to woo woo stuff as well. I, guess, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I do think that from a, or at, at least from like a, I guess like Western philosophical theoretical standpoint. Um, you know, the way that we understand things as separate um, and categorize 
product of, of language and culture. You know, and that's why, I mean, if it wasn't for that, then everything would be just like this kind of undifferentiated mass or blob. And I think that ties neatly into how, you know, there's so much in the in Zen about, you know, going beyond language and not mistaking the moon for the finger pointing at the moon. And so, you know, in a, I think it's in a very real and, you know, I would, I guess scientific, I don't know anything about science, but um, the way that it, you can't tell when the body stops and your chair begins if you were looking at it through like a powerful microscope, it's, it's just like oh, stuff, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. So yeah. the fact that we see it that way is a, is a product of uh, habit of perception rather than what's actually there. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. It's a mind-expanding thing to say. Thank you. <laughs> is there anybody online? That... David's got his hand up, I think. There's a yellow hand. Hey, oh, David. Yes, hi. Thank you for the talk. It was very timely for me. So it made me think a lot. So I also really enjoyed the Path of Aliveness book. Um, I haven't quite finished it, but the parts that I have dug into are very, very rich. Um, as you were talking, it, um, I, one thing that just kept going through my mind and I wanted to ask you about your experience of this, the thing that I just kept thinking about was how um, my experience of Zen practice as experienced through my body and mind changes constantly and um, I and part of me wonders if so you know um, part of me wonders if it's me just getting older and so um, what you know I think ultimately ultimately my question is 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 there what what is the experience of uh, you know, your body and mind through Zen practice over like a 40 year practice or however many years you've been into this path. Um, and uh, how do you, how do you kind of, um, I guess, equalize with that or how does that sit with you? So you're talking about, you're asking about change and how this constant change, is that, is well, that, that right? specifically, ex specifically, your experience of Zen practice in your body and mind, as your body and mind age. Oh, yeah, wow. I should give a talk about that sometime. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, I think the more you practice, the more you become aware of the incredible onrush of changes in your life that are just relentless, you know. And of course, the older you are, the more of those you've experienced. So, I yeah, it's. I, I think when I started out, I didn't even quite understand that impermanence thing. I didn't really get. I didn't really see that much impermanence. And now all, everything is impermanent, and it, it's just. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about as far as Zen practice and aging. And um, that's why I guess it's, I, I think I would hate to age without it. Um, and I don't, 
I, you know, I know I know a fair number of unhappy older people, and I think I might be one of them. Not that I did this for happiness, but I do feel that <laughs> life is a little more satisfying uh, when I can be uh, allow these all this changing to. I don't know. Am I answering your question? I think I'm going off on a tangent. I sure feel though all that all that incredible rush of change. All you have to do is go look through your old your emails, you know. Like, just, I mean, to see all the things you do in a day, all the stuff that happens that comes at you from every angle. It's, I don't know, David. Is that is that is that what? You, like? <laughs> you know, I, I just think something about I, I think. It, your talk was making me think about, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm roughly 10 years into my practice on and off, and um, I definitely was feeling how much my experience of Zen practice and my body and mind have changed over those 10 years, you know, in uh-huh. relation to events with my children, in relation to events with the climate, in relation to... <laughs> The world. The world is an entirely different place compared to when I started practice actually about 15 years ago. So, um, And I also think a lot about it in terms of me being older. I started when I was roughly 40. I'm 55 now. And it's just, it feels like an entirely different experience. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think sometimes I, I struggle with, am I, am I doing it right at, you know, because it feels different than when I was 40. So am I doing it right, or am I experiencing the right things, or, you know, things like that? Well, um, okay. So you're feeling, and, and you feel that your mind has changed a lot. Your, your mind has changed in that, in that transformative way that, that practice does for us. You say the way you handle your children, the way you... You know, handle your job. These are so. Isn't that an answer for you that you have transformed in ways that are helpful to the world? Yeah, I've seen plenty of evidence that that um, that I have somewhat transformed. All right. Well, thank you again for for being here, and um, it was a joy to talk to you. <laughs>